aboard the battleship pretension. I'm Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening. Uh, Tyler is um, still out of commission. Um, you can follow him on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, Twitter, more lessons. Facebook, I don't know. Um, I'm not on Facebook, really. Uh, I'm sorry. You just, look, but... you just look up people by name, David. That's how okay. Facebook works. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't have I, a handle. I literally don't know these things. <laughs> I don't, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, like, I, Have I mean, you never I, seen people use it in a movie? Or I, that's, The thing is, I actually do check Facebook most days just to see like whose birthday it is and is there anything i need to know or whatever but i never post except for like their automatic posts that happen from battleship retention um sure. to my my facebook that's the only thing that ever gets posted on my facebook is battleship retention links uh but um i mean really what happened was that i was a myspace addict and when facebook was supplanting MySpace. I saw it as a way to like ease off of that. Mm. Um, and that worked for a little bit and then Twitter came along and I've been obsessed with Twitter since 2008. So, uh, <laughs> really they're work. always going to throw something new at you, David. That's the trick. Yeah. Well now I'm on blue sky. Thanks to you. Yeah. Yeah. Are you loving it? That. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I mean, like I can catch up pretty quickly cause I, I don't follow that many people yet. Um, and it also means like there's certain, I want to say any names. There are people like that. I love on Twitter, you know, that I like see like, Oh, so-and-so's on blue sky. Yeah. I'll follow them. Not realizing that someone who tweets a lot, or I guess in this case, skeets a lot <laughs> when you only follow 30 people, it's like oh, nearly half of my, my feet oh, sure, sometimes yeah. is this one person. So, uh, I need to definitely, um, expand. So what uh, you're saying is you follow some real losers who uh, you really don't want to hear from that much. I mean, I, you get sick of anyone eventually, you know, Lord, don't I know it. I have to get this podcast because <laughs> you are for a week. Uh, well, you know what I have never gotten sick of is Turner classic <laughs> movies. Uh, no, how could but, you? But um, that might not be a question anymore because uh, it seems like the, uh, it doesn't look good for the future of Turner Classic Movies. Uh, I mean, nothing has been announced in terms of the the, the network going away, but um, fucking Warner Brothers laid off like almost all of the like main executives, right? Yeah, the kind of the senior staff, not the hosts. So the hosts are still intact. And today the LA times reported that uh, Charlie Tabish, who's kind of been the vice president of programming for, I mean, 25 years, practically since TCM's inception um, might get his job back. And um, you know, I've been, I'm not, you know, going to like extend my association with TCM further than it lasts, but I did help with their social media stuff for a couple of their TCM fests. And so I have a sense of like, where their favor and power structures lie within the company and who's really like driving the engine. Tabish is definitely one of them. Um, the big laws, especially for TCM festival attendees is Genevieve McGillicuddy, yeah. um, who like, from what I understand, kind of spearheaded the initiation of the festival in the first place and kind of overseen it ever since. Um, and it sounds like her, her job is not coming back. And so what TCM festival look like that next year, I can't imagine. I know it's, I mean, obviously wildly successful, so I can't imagine those do away with it that quickly, but you never know these days. It's very hard to hold on to anything. And so, yeah, it seems like yeah, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. 
Yeah, it seems like right now the channel and the culture around it aren't going to visibly change. It's just going to degrade to a certain extent. And some, you know, careful TCM watchers have noticed that they're doing more repeats than they used to. You know, for the longest time, they would just kind of license a film out, show it once, and then fill their schedule with other films. And now they're extending their licenses to make sure they're showing films a couple of times within the license period. Um, and all that kind of little stuff that eventually adds up. And especially when you're just le- relying on your hosts who have, you know, in varying degrees of extensive film knowledge, but who aren't full-time dedicated to programming a 24 hour film network, you're going to start seeing some gaps and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that bears out. Um, and I'm sure people will be watching very closely for any sign of uh, deviation, because if there's one thing we know about TCM's audience is that they are, <laughs> uh, I can't even think of a polite way to put it very attentive. Let's just say yeah yeah um and uh and 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 outspoken about it uh yes yeah i mean i'm um i'm not a regular tcm watcher uh but i am a regular tcm film fest goer um so i uh i can't help but focus my personal worries on what's going to happen to the festival. And yeah, as you said, the the name that leapt out at me when I was reading that was Genevieve McGillicuddy. It's the number one name that I know of that list because of, of the, the film festival. And I'm trying to, uh, trying to just like make peace preemptively, uh, with it, you know, the, the same way that I had to for, Filmstruck, you know, mm-hmm. um, or, or, or other, other things, I guess Fandor, but now Fandor like is back, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't I, get what's going on with that. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I used to use Fandor a lot. Um, yeah. uh, and I haven't gone back to them, but, uh, anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it's very sad. And, um, it, I keep thinking of, uh, Sorry to bring up television. I know how much you hate television, but um, there's, no, this uh, is television in a way. Uh, yeah, there's an episode of Silicon Valley. I don't know. If you, I don't remember if you watched that show. Where Just the first couple episodes? Oh, okay. This is yeah. This is like season like three or four. Stephen uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's character, uh, who's like a tech executive CEO, who's been brought in to run Pied Piper, um, has a little speech to uh, Richard. Um, that boils down to basically like your algorithm is not the product, the little like server boxes you're using it to sell to companies are not the product. Your product is your stock. Right. And now, I mean, I think probably a lot of the entertainment business, but especially Warner brothers seems to be absolutely running its business with that in mind. We're, we're not a, they're not a film or entertainment or television company, they are a company that serves the interest of their stockholders and that entertainment products are simply the way that they aim to achieve that. But if it's, if it makes more sense to just not release the Batgirl movie uh, in terms of the stock price, then that's what they're going to, going to do because they don't have a mission to, create movies anymore they have a mission just to serve their stockholders 
Yeah, for sure. And especially this news coming uh, after the flash had such a piss poor opening weekend, it's hard for um, classic film fans to not see that connection and be like, okay, so are we paying the price for the fact that you spearheaded this superhero movie that nobody wanted to see? Um, And, you know, they'll keep making superhero movies, but they'll stop supporting classic film, even though the classic film angle is making money. It might not, you know, make Avengers money, but it's a profitable enterprise. It's just not gangbusters profitable kind of thing. No. Well, it's, it's all very sad. Yeah. Uh, It does tie in with our main topic this week, which I, uh, we will get to, I'm sure after this advertisement. Uh, yeah, I want to tell you right now, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. Uh, today, I was listening to a lot. Of, I listened to a lot of stuff. What should I, which, what should I focus on? Um uh, I was listening to a band from Philadelphia called Bleary Eyed. I was just in Philadelphia and I didn't go see any bands because I'm not that cool. But uh, my understanding there is there for some... like a day and a half. Yeah, <laughs> but my understanding is as someone who like w- tries to keep up somewhat on new music, my understanding is that the Philly the Philly indie rock scene is one of the major scenes in the country uh, right now and one of the main places that uh, shoegaze music has been uh, revitalized. And um, this band Bleary-Eyed are definitely uh, evidence of that. They're fantastic. Uh, check out the song Upset. It's really good. Um, it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available. And what did I, did I already say that? Uh, they're available at a little price uh, at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, we're back, Scott. Let's get into it, shall we? You uh, absolutely. You mentioned the TCM Fest, and that was kind of where I got started germinating the idea for this topic. And it actually, it actually gone back pre TCM Fest to a film Twitter discussion where someone was, I guess, deriding the idea that oh, I think it was like oh, Criterion. Because the Criterion Channel will have like theme months, yeah. and whether you know, I think that's they're, they're doing like AI is one of their themes right now. But there was they did a pre-code month, and someone on film Twitter, I don't remember who it was, was deriding the idea of like, oh, so Criterion does a month on pre-code, and now like half of film Twitter is talking about pre-code movies, uh, you know, um, and uh, and then, um. I was at TCM Fest and um, the recipient of the Robert Osborne award this year was Donald Bogle. 
and in the introduction um, that they gave to Don, Donald Bogle, they ta- talked about the fact, that, or I mean, I, I guess the fact I wasn't in the early nineties, I wasn't that much of a cinephile. I was 10, you know, um, but for uh, shame. Yeah. Jake Bart is shaking like, his head at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Dorothy Dandridge, I guess as a, an actress was somewhat forgotten until Donald Bogle wrote the first ever biography of her. And then that is sort of led to the TV movie where, um, it was Holly Berry, right? Who played her in the TV movie? Am I, uh, I uh, think so. I, I know I saw it, uh, but I can't remember. I saw it. I haven't time, seen it, but I'm pretty so sure you're right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, other, some other stuff came up with TCM fest that I'll talk about in a little bit, but, just it, it, i just started thinking about this idea of like well yeah the criterion channel itself might be relatively recent um but this idea that what we all talk about in these sort of ongoing you know uh metaphysical <laughs> film discourse discussion among cinephi- cinephiles is always sort of going to be de- dictated by what is most visible and accessible and available um and so i'm i'm roughly calling this visibility and discourse i think that was kind of tyler's right. suggestion because i couldn't figure, figure out a way to put this into something pithy and and tyler suggested visibility and discourse when i saw him last week so uh, i think that's what i'll call the episode um so i just wanted to use that as kind of a leaping off point to to talk about how like we can talk about examples of how this has happened in in the past or in our lives as cinephiles uh and also we can talk about um the extent to which it is a good or not good thing what are your thoughts um i would say good thing um see you next week everybody yeah i was Um, gonna say don't give away don't spoil the ending no i i mean it's like it's but it's an inevitable part i i found that complaint that because i see yeah i saw that complaint on twitter too and one i just think that's not a very interesting way to approach movies at all like i think it's super fun that you know i I don't watch i don't go hardcore into the criterion channel every month because you know we have great rep theaters around town i've got a pile of discs that i still need to watch that kind of stuff um but i really love seeing people talk about kind of the same things once a month it's like I know when they put up their Michelle Yao section, I saw a lot of chatter about that. Yeah, the pre-code section got a lot of chatter. Um, and then, well, the one section I did do a deep dive on because it coincided directly with my unemployment is the erotic thriller section posted like that very month. And I was already in a big erotic thrillers boat. So I watched all of those. And mm-hmm. so did a lot of other people. So like we were all talking about these like really fairly, you know, in some cases, pretty major films, but some of them were really obscure and you couldn't really see otherwise. And that was super fun. And it's great to like have community around to talk uh, about those movies with. I mean, if you look back on kind of the history of film distribution, it's not so different from like if a theater mounts a Ozu series in the 60s or something like that, you're going to see those movies with other people and you're probably running in the same people at screening after screening. And a lot of that is how... I mean, I was going to say when you mentioned not watching the great internet channel all the time because of the great rep theaters within that microcosm of like LA film Twitter, that happens too, you know, yeah, like everyone's going to bleak week or, you know, everyone's seeing the Bela movies, or I guess like, uh, it'll be in the next week, it'll be John Eustache, right? Because, uh, who's doing, someone's doing a Cinematech. Cinematech is doing John Eustache. Um, so I was going to say it, it happens 
in every film community it happens yeah like when uh the arrow showed the heartbreak kid which is a very rare movie that you can re- you can watch like occasionally on youtube but like everybody i know through film twitter was out that screening and julia was like man film twitter is out tonight yeah and of course it was just like legions of dudes but what are you gonna do um <laughs> but um but i also think in a larger sense that like we're all impacted by this idea of curation one way or another you know i think people like to think that they're going on their own little jaunts of film exploration and to a degree nowadays you can like a year or two ago i went deep into really obscure uh french new wave stuff that you can only get on uh, like torrent sites and stuff like that and so like that's a thing where like i had to do my own research and kind of form my own mm-hmm. um not quite canon but a list of films that i wanted to watch out of that based on very scant um ideas of what they're about who they had and them that kind of thing and some were winners some were losers etc and so it is possible but i think examples like that are rare and i know even in my own viewing that's true like most of the time i'm watching stuff that a streaming service is telling me i should watch or rep theater is telling me i should watch or that a disc producer is telling me i should watch all by dint of putting it out and spotlighting it um and you know there's some of my own initiative in taking advantage of that particular disc or going out to the theater that particular night but all of film history is tied up in this idea of curation yeah, um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the disc because I, I, I just I, I like um, talking about all the different avenues this could happen by because yeah, one of them is disc providers specific. I mean, Criterion is definitely the biggest yeah uh, voice there, but you know, there's there's other ones too. But um, yeah, Criterion can put something out that maybe people didn't know about or fallen into a weird like um i mean i feel like for a while tyler and i for people our age it felt like one false move was this kind of like hidden gem that people like people aren't talking about this and i'm sure for people slightly who were already of age when it came out you know because like i said one false move is what 93 92 um something like that yeah, so I was a little kid. We were little kids. We didn't know about it at the time because it was too small a movie to get a big release. I'm sure cinephiles who are five to seven years older than I am saw it like when it came out and, and always knew. But it always felt like for like my, my our class of film school, like no one was talking about One False Move. But now it's in the Criterion Collection. So now it's, for all intents and purposes, part of the canon, you know, or totally. at least part of the part of the discussion. Um and then that can also happen with movies. Criterion can put out a movie that maybe everyone knows about, but hadn't taken seriously at that level, I think. And suddenly it becomes either people are saying like watching it with the eyes of like, Oh, this is a criterion movie now, or people may be pushing back against that. Shouldn't that shouldn't be in the collection, but it still becomes part of the discourse. I mean, I, I I've already seen um, both sides of this with them announcing La Bamba. Um, Oh sure, uh, La Bamba is coming to Criterion Blu-ray um, in September, I think, uh, which I'm stoked about because I had always assumed it was just so you know, just another '80s biopic, uh, and I had never seen it. It was one of when Natalie and I did our you know every week for over a year during quarantine, she picked a movie that she loved that I or at least that she liked that I hadn't seen, <laughs> and one of them was La Bamba, and La Bamba rocks. It's I mean. It, no, uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to make a joke there, but 
it's a really good movie and so i was excited to uh um to see that younger me like 19 year old me if that had happened i would have been like oh man i wanted to be the one to tell people labamba was special but uh i don't i've lost that bit of ego um uh, and now i'm super happy that labamba is uh uh, in the collection, but even if you know there are movies in the Criterion Collection that I don't like, and there are movies that uh, oh, other people don't like, but that's they still it doesn't it doesn't have to do. I don't think what I'm saying is that uh, these movies become visible in a way that everyone suddenly agrees. I just mean to become part of the discussion. Yeah, and to use like the most recent kind of most talked about example, like Jean Dielman getting the top spot in the sight and sound poll. I don't think that happens without the audience that Criterion. Uh, kind of nurtured around it by releasing it on disc um some like uh, that was probably at this point 14 years ago or so um but i'm looking now at the sight and sound list from 2002 which is before it would have been like that widely available and it does show up but number 73 and then the 2012 list i found it at i think number 37 and just increased from there obviously and you know that's an example of criterion not having to do a lot in the way of like active advocacy just making the film available i mean that's how i was able to first see as criterion putting it out i'm not sure if it was even on dvd before then um but in those kind of i, don't know, I ways, saw it in a, i saw it in a theater i've since it seen it in a theater let's not <laughs> you know, get around to bragging too much here um but in portland oregon opportunities are few um so, yeah, I mean, that's just an example of how um, even just releasing a film and not giving, not needing to give it a, any kind of massive spotlight can have a pretty demonstrable effect on its reputation. Um, I'm trying to think of others just kind of looking at my shelf that was like stuff that Criterion put out specifically that wasn't really on many people's radar, but maybe didn't go on the kind of the same degree of acclaim, but managed to get a larger foothold in the uh culture well actually daisies um the czech film uh by i can never pronounce the woman's last name so i'm gonna skip that (laughs) but it's a great czech film that um hadn't been available until criterion put it on like a dv so that eclipse series that they did for a while and then they finally put it out on blu-ray i think it's past year which is massively overdue but um even just having it out on dvd and then as part of their streaming channel, like that made it more available to more people. And now it's like one that I see memed constantly and constantly screen capped. And it's a huge reference point in cinephilia now, whereas like yep. 15, 20 years ago, hardly anybody had seen it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've actually still not seen daisies, but I did. Um, I took a cinematography class in film school and the cinematographer or the teacher gave all of us these bootleg discs of a different Vera Chitlova film, uh, Fruit of Paradise, which is the one a- oh, after yeah. Daisies. So I have seen Fruit of film. Paradise because I had to see it for um, uh, for a class, and I would like to see it properly because it was not a very good yeah. like, even disc that he burned for all of us, you know. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's not part of the conversation. I just uh, I don't know about that story until side- you mentioned it side story uh the first time i saw johnny guitar was in a class and this was also before it was available on dvd and the professor had some kind of bootleg copy yeah i had never heard of the film before and so i was like okay new nick ray film whatever um 
but I, the color in it was so bad that I assumed it was a black and white film that had been badly colorized. And that was like the only copy he could find. <laughs> and it wasn't until Olive put it out um, really just a few years after that. And I saw a popular list. Oh, it was like, Oh my God, this movie looks spectacular. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't see giant guitar until it got a 4k restoration. So I uh, yeah. have only ever seen it. Uh, but I did, I had a similar experience to that. Actually, I took a class on Latin American cinema in film school and we watched, um, uh, Pichote, P I X O T E, which mm-hmm. is, uh, and it was, it, it, if it was a DVD, it was probably an SD like rip from, uh, I mean, I guess DVDs are SD, but like from a VHS or whatever, it was just like very muddy, yeah, uh, and, but I remember the, like really liking the movie. But then it's in one of the Martin Scorsese World Cinema Project Criterion box sets, and I watched it again about a year ago. I watched watched that Blu-ray for the first time, and it was like seeing the movie for the first time. Um, again, we're off we're off track. I think not too far though. It's all having to do with yeah. I mean, I think restorations though is another good example of like how films can get rescued and put back into the conversation. Um, and not every film that gets released by like a criterion necessarily undergoes restoration. Some already have like fine elements in place. Um, but, uh, um, there are plenty that are kind of rejuvenated through that. I know, well, Olivia Sayas's cold water, um, was unavailable for decades following its release, mostly because the music licensing was so complicated because it uses a ton of sixties tracks and it was this like fly by night, super low budget French film. And so mm-hmm. they didn't really, you know, bill it for the long term um but then that got restored and again criterion put it out and now it's you know has a pretty high place in his canon um she's uh, yeah there are, i'm trying to think of other examples of, of of restorations i feel like i don't know if i'm just projecting a timeline onto this because it's how it happened for me but i feel like first I think it was Arbelos who restored Nina Menke's Queen of Diamonds. And then someone mm-hmm. else restored Magdalena Varaga and the Bloody Child. And then and then she made her first movie in twelve years with Brainwashed last year. Oh, and I, yeah. and so I wonder if like renewed attention from those from restorations to uh is what got Nina Menke's um the the backing or whatever she needed to make to make brainwashed i don't know if that's true but that's just kind of how it happened for me i didn't know who it's just like i didn't know who nina Menkes was i suddenly within a short period of time watched three restored versions of her movies and then it was like opening up the paper and i don't know if the paper but you know what i mean uh, <laughs> opening up twitter and seeing like oh nina Menkes has a new movie coming out um Unfortunately, I did not like Brainwashed, uh, but I'm still a a huge fan of um, the three movies that I have seen, including Queen of Diamonds, which um, I think I it made the last time I revised my top 100 of all time list. I think Queen of Diamonds made the list, made the cut. Oh, nice. uh, Yeah, I kind of wondered if a similar thing happened with uh, Andre Zulovsky, the guy who did um, Possession, which kind of got a rejuvenated degree of appreciation a little over 10 years ago. And then he made Cosmos, which was the first movie he'd made in 15 years. And I'm not sure I've just trying to do some very quick research to see if that was spurred on by the renewed appreciation for possession. And I can't find a direct connection, but it's hard not to imagine that it at least helped. Yeah. Um, 
in terms of other like kind of restoration stuff I've heard and I not hundred percent sure on this, but I heard that the 70 millimeter restoration of vertigo in like 1989 or 1990 really kind of solidified that film's reputation. I know, um, on there's some podcast I was listening to recently with Paul Schrader, who talked about writing obsession for Brian De Palma. And he was like, yeah, we could rip off vertigo then because no one else had seen it. It was really easy to do. And nobody cared whether or not we were just stealing from it. That you reminded me of, I said, um, Okay, I want to say a couple things. So I just want to mention, like, even if it's, I don't know how much, like, this is in the huger discourse, but I see it even in my own, like, writing about movies or um, talking about movies on this podcast. Like, what was it, like, two years ago? Uh, maybe, was it just last year? Anyway, um, six, uh, I always forget his name, Miklos Jansko films. Oh, Yeah. Uh, got restored and I watched all six of them and now I find myself like referencing them in reviews or you and I did um, sign up for the Patreon everybody uh, patreon.com slash battleship retention you get some uh, extra episodes uh, uh, every month and uh, you'll also be supporting Tyler um, anyway we did um, an episode on our top five war films of all time and I included the red and the white on my top five and I don't know like like not to keep going back to that one tweet that I saw brushing back against this, but am I, am I supposed to self-consciously be like, Oh, I only saw this because the restoration, like, like as if it's like not fair or it doesn't count somehow because I didn't like stumble upon the red and white, the red and the white, like naturally. Um, that, yeah. I mean, like, I guess that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying though, is that like, we're all influenced by this in one way or another. I mean, just the fact that, with each successive generation of home video formats, there are fewer and fewer movies available, which is kind of the metric you always hear that like tons and tons and tons of movies released on VHS, a lot were released on DVD and then fewer on Blu-ray, fewer on 4k. And now in streaming, it's just like this ever changing morass of films. Um, and so depending on how you're watching stuff, like you're meeting something at, at some point of someone's curative desire of like saying this film is worth our time and attention and money uh, to putting out. And even if it's a DVD, you're checking out from the library, you know, that's yeah. somebody's effort from 20 years ago. Um, now to go back to what you were saying, uh, someone at, during an introduction at TCM fest, and I might've actually been Donald Bogle in his speech. I can't remember, but someone made reference to like his class of, his like film school class or just his like sort of generation of film lovers, like rediscovering or discovering for the first time, I guess a lot of classic 20th century Fox films in the 1970s. Hmm. And so I did a lot of like scouring today to try to figure out, was there some, like was the vault opened up or something? Right. And I think it was actually the opposite Fox in the seventies. Cause Fox, in the late late sixties and early seventies, was losing hella money, um, and in the seventies they they did a sort of cheapo restoration, quote unquote, or preservation of their movies that basically meant they made like copies of the movies and then like basically destroyed a lot of like negatives and fine grains and oh wow and and stuff like that. Just like these are our new copies, so like. Um, so yeah, I was reading, a uh, home, home entertainment forum, like thread from like 10 years ago that was discussing this. Um, 
so basically like the example someone gave is like um like any attempts like the best version of leave her to heaven that you and i have seen yeah is based on like digital attempts to recreate the technicolor because they don't actually have like the technicolor seps separate like uh colors uh they say seps in in the industry um they do (laughs) i I I believe you yeah um uh so it made me wonder like was there like suddenly attention being paid to these classic fox titles because people were up in arms about them not being preserved correctly maybe that's what this person was uh was was referencing but um uh yeah i I guess threatening the legacy of something can um can bring attention to it as well as as burnishing it yeah i feel like there's even a recent example of that sort of thing happening where um there is like an actual danger of losing a set of films but i can't think of what it would have been um but i know that's like i mean now that there's much more attention in the past i'd say about 30 years really since the creation of the library of congress for films mm-hmm. um studios are much more attentive to the necessity of preserving films um you know at least until david zaslav discovers the, their uh you know <laughs> salt mine in utah or wherever they're storing them um yeah. Yeah. decides to sell off the real estate but um that aside yeah there's fortunately much more attention being paid to at least maintaining the elements the trick though is that even in that mess you there's always a chance of losing track of what's in there i mean that's how like metropolis got rediscovered is literally like the film canister had the label for a different title on it Mm -hmm. and so um the in the rush to preserve things remembering that things can get miscategorized i mean right now that's the big hope you know i don't think anything will come to it but like a year and a half ago tcm sent a film crew down to brazil to try to unearth magnificent ambersons finally and i sincerely doubt they'll find anything but if they were to it would be because um someone had just happened to help hold on to the wrong thing you know um and so actually this reminds me of um the film a company has been model I think it's Beth Modell, um, has a series that he's been putting out for several years on DVD called Accidentally Preserved. That's just like random bits of silent films that he found that people didn't mean to keep. They just happened to mm-hmm. keep in their closet or attic or wherever, um, which is pretty cool. Wait, wait, what uh, I should know is a good cinephile. I should know. Uh, but what, what is the, there's a whole story like this with Buster Keaton's entire like filmography, right? That he like, he had copies um and then someone else bought his house and found them in the garage That's right i forgot about and, this and gave them back to him while he was still alive or something like that uh yeah because because most of the original negatives and everything had been destroyed uh because they weren't keeping stuff like that right yeah all that I open think, back then i think the same thing actually happened to stagecoach um i can't remember if it was stagecoach but there was some film that they end up finding in John Wayne's garage because um, John Wayne, whatever his faults may be, really liked movies um, and did just hold on to all kinds of random things. And I know Stagecoach has had a rough preservation history, so that's why I think it's that one. But um, yeah, it's it's funny the way things survive. And actually, that kind of points to a larger kind of, I guess, gap in the idea of film discourse is all the films that we can't see that um could sway the course of history it's like what we call john gilman or whatever this 10 years the greatest film of all time 
that comes with the asterisk of like, this is the greatest film that we know exists. Um, right. And there are legions of films, especially from the silent era that we'll never get to see. Hmm. Yeah. That makes me sad to think about. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, there are still like great films that are readily available that I haven't gotten around to. Yeah, of course. But, uh, no shortage. I, I'm, I'm going to live forever. And so I'm going to watch all the movies. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> you do, I, you, I this, feel like this came up on a Patreon recently, but I, I think you do have that idea in your head that you'll see every movie eventually, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, except for, uh, what was the joke? Except for Red Notice. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't remember which one Tyler and I joked that I would never see. It was Red Notice. Yeah, eventually I, w- I do intend to see every movie except for Red Notice. Uh, <laughs> and then you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> You could play red notice at my funeral. Um, Perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, I had other places to go with this. Oh yeah. I mean, um, uh, so on, on both sides of this, um, a lot of these movies, movies get rediscovered later. You know, it's a wonderful life was, uh, is a, a famous example of a movie that was actually like not super well received when it came out, but then right. it was like cheap to license and kept getting played at Christmas time on TV and then became the Christmas classic that it is now because it was on TV at the time because yeah. it was affordable. Um, yeah. Uh, and then there's an interesting thing that happens. Like I said, I don't like to get, I don't say where I work, get too much into it, but um uh my my boss has made this point before that like there are movies that came out because we i mean we tend to you know you and i are americans most most of our listeners are american or at least english speaking we tend to be like sort of anglo-centric or english-centric um and uh but my boss is talking about there's there are plenty of movies in the 70s 80s that came out that are available to us but at some point someone decided this movie is not going to play in say Hungary. And then we're, so we're not going to do any localization for Hungary and not Mm. any dubbing or subtitling. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy 20, 30 years later, maybe some Hungarian broadcaster is like, Hey, can we license your film? And be like, well, it's not dubbed. If you want uh, Hungarian dubs, you're going to have to do it yourself. And they're like, Oh, we're not going to pay that. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where certain movies don't play in other countries because like one executive at one point said right. we're, we're not going to spend the money to dub or subtitle that movie in that language. And then it never gets done. Yeah. I mean, that's something I know we talk about from time to time in which Julie is really good about highlighting is that like a lot of to think about the other way, a lot of the foreign language films that come here are not like the popular movies that people are going out and seeing. They're yeah. like the art, artsy festival movies that get like a few dozen admissions or whatever in their home country. Um, and so we end up with kind of a warped perception of like Romanian cinema or I, I know Swedish cinema is especially a, a prominent case because like, obviously we so associate that with Ingmar Bergman, but for most of his life, he was a very marginal figure in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a good cultural export, but he wasn't the guy that people were really turning out for aside from um, when he almost literally shut down the country because people were addicted to watching scenes from a marriage, which I always think is like so cool. Yeah. And then the marriage rate, uh, skyrocketed in, yeah. Uh, Or the divorce rate is something to say. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the example that I always give of that is because we had our, uh, friend, um, uh, uh, 
Louise. Um, sorry, <laughs> he goes by one name. Uh, he has a pen name. I, I always forget which one. But Louise um, from Brazil was talking about that exact thing. That like he happens to live in like Brasilia, where like the main cinematheque and the home of the, like the their festivals are. So he has access to seeing these movies. But most of the like Brazilian movies that we associate with, like you know, like uh um why am i trying to blank on the the movie about the woman in her apartment uh like five years ago it was it was a great movie i know you liked it yeah um was it called like like, an a no no that's no that's something else senegal that's senegal um yeah oh i want to know this without looking it up it's like uh it's not. Oh, is it Aquarius? I think yep, it was Aquarius. Aquarius. I just yeah. Up. Okay. So like, yeah, Brazilian audiences aren't flocking to see Aquarius. Most of them don't even have the opportunity like to see yeah. it. It's not playing in their local cinema. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that's why I like, um, I don't know if they, I think they still do it, but I know the UCLA film television archive used to have like an annual spotlight on like current Iranian movies and I don't do mean yeah because I, I don't mean like the Jafar Panahi and stuff like that that we see at festivals like action movies I only went to one once and it like wasn't really a very good movie that I saw it was called Sunset Truck but it was just like fa- a fascinating like cultural object to see like this is a an, an Iranian movie that Iranians like would actually go see as a family yeah totally. you know, it had this sort of classic it's about like um this uh family of iranians who own a uh like a vacation rental house they like provide a service like they take people from the city like they pick them up in their truck the sunset truck and take them out for these vacations out there but the place is actually owned by a landlord and he wants to shut the place down so they gotta like rally together it's a pretty like standard uh uh kind of corny plot but um just the fact of seeing that kind of standard corny plot but with the specifics of um iranian culture or at least how iranian culture would like to see itself that's often what sure. mainstream movies in any in any country often i think reflect more of uh what people want to be seen as than what they actually are but they also reveal things about what they actually are but i think you kind of have to be it's a little esoteric um for me to be able to glean all that stuff from sunset truck but anyway um I'm glad they still do that. I didn't go this year. Right? It's well, usually early in the year, glad. right? Uh, I feel like it's yeah, like January. I, it was, yeah. I think it was pretty recent, so okay. it's mm-hmm. already passed for this year. Um, yeah, I was trying to find um, the title of... Julie and I watched a mainstream Japanese movie on our flight to Japan. Oh, you were talking uh, about this? was like six or seven years ago. Um, and I can't remember the name of it or even quite what it's about, but it has something to do with like telepathy and telekinesis and it has all these wild like animations and it actually had some of the girls from our little sister in it as well which is kind of fun to see um and so that's kind of i was trying to look it up that way but i couldn't quite make the connection fast enough um but yeah it was kind of like totally wild like probably aimed at teens ish um movie that you know, I don't know its popularity in Japan, but you can see it's going for more of a mainstream crowd and would have almost no purchase outside of Japan because it's so culturally specific in the way it goes about it. Um, but it's kind of too bad because it was a super fun movie that I'm glad we saw. 
Yeah, uh, I saw because um, this is just like we're so just like sharing anecdotes now, but it's fine. Um, There's a lot of uh, people who live in Los Angeles. No, there's a large Korean population uh, here. And so I went to see it was subtitled in English, but I went to a screening of a very like mainstream because Korea has a, uh, a big film industry, South Korea. Oh, yeah. Um, and I went to go see a very mainstream and clearly very expensive uh, thriller called Emergency Declaration. I'm hoping the title is better in Korean because that's <laughs> kind of a boring title. Yeah. But uh, you just remember you mentioned like the girls from Our Little Sister, like Emergency Declaration is very much like a sort of like american 70s thriller era of like disaster movie where it's like it's a huge ensemble uh, around this one disaster but one of the main characters is played by song kang ho uh Hmm. we all know from bong joon ho's movies like parasite and the host and stuff like that um and it was just super cool to see uh to see him in um uh something other than a movie that's you know I, i mean i'm sure Bong Joon Ho's movies play well in in South Korea too, but uh, um, it's to see, it was just interesting to see him in something that's not would not be considered an art house movie in the in the U.S. Yeah, turns out these people are just working actors and yeah. they're willing to yeah. take all kinds of jobs. Yeah, he's also very funny. He's very funny in the Bong Joon Ho movies. He's very funny in Emergency oh, Declaration. Sure. It's a tense movie about like a terrorist attack on an airplane that's in the air. So like. Um, Anyway, he like he plays a cop whose mother is on the plane um, and uh, the plane is flying to Hawaii. And so he like um, uh, he's like accosting the the uh, the the people at the airline. He's like, where's the plane flying to? Um, Because he knows his mother's on a plane to Hawaii. And they're like, the plane is flying to Honolulu. And he's like, oh, thank God. And then his partner is like, sir, Honolulu's in Hawaii. He's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good bit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we've gone far afield here. But um, I think the idea is basically to, I don't know, I, I clearly just let this one twitter guy get under my skin because i think the idea here is is to refute refute the idea that this is like a new phenomenon like uh, i think we've effectively demonstrated that like this this sort of availability and visibility of movies has always uh had an impact on what the canon is and what the discourse is at any given time yeah and that's exactly why like the canon is being so thrown asunder over the past few years is uh, there's a more active desire to expand it. Um, And part of that comes from different kinds of audiences driving the narrative on what films are worth seeing. Part of it just has to do with growing multiculturalism that there's just a larger population that wants to um, unearth different kinds of movies. And then audience curiosity is just changing. I just think, especially in the internet age and with, I mean, this is kind of where like the proliferation of media can be a bad thing where like people take for granted that anyone could just pop on the rules of the game. The rules of the game is like my stock example for like the film canning. I could just easily use Casablanca because both I think are such extraordinary films that people really do take for granted and which shouldn't be overlooked um, as some of the greatest films of all time. But 
the consequence of them being readily available for, you know, at least the past 20, 30 years is that people are like, okay, so what else is out there? And, you know, now that we don't have to wait every few years for these movies to come to our town's rep cinema to mm-hmm. play them again, or from the come up on TV to watch them again and re-experience them. There's just more pockets now to fill. I know um, I've heard some pro- programmers talk about this difficulty too, where like um, shifting just in the past five to 10 years, their approach were like, films that used to pack the theaters now kind of draw empty audiences because everyone's seen them. And conversely, the films that are super rare um, that, you know, Mm. 20, 30 years ago, no one would have bothered with because they wanted to wait for Casablanca to come around. Um, Now those are the films that pack theaters because it's such a rare opportunity to get to see them. Um, And with that comes a renewed drive to be like, okay, really what are the great films then? Um, and some of that, there's can be an overcorrection in some areas. And I know that there are people out there like Paul Schrader um, who thinks that the latest sign and sound list is an overcorrection. Um, to them, I say it's still a really great film. Who cares? Um, but uh, whatever the case, it comes from a very earnest place of like, I've definitely had this experience of like, you go in to see a movie almost sometimes because it's rare. I do this, especially at TCM Fest where it's like, I'll go see whatever, because it's like, I have no idea when it'll ever play again. And it's not on video. It's not even on the torrent site. So I'll just go see it. And then you walk out and you're like, this is so great. I can't believe I won't be able to see it again ever. I definitely had the experience with like, so this is Paris, which now has like an HD file that they played on HBO max. It's like somebody put it out already. Um, But the first time I saw you and I go ahead. Uh, just the first time I saw that, I was like over the moon for it. And like, it was just a one-off screening at CineFamily that didn't really have any special uh, kind of to do around it. It was just like their monthly silent screening, but it was so, so, so great. Um, and so with that rarity does come some, I think, overexcitement where you're so excited to discover this thing and you really feel a need to like uh, proselytize for it because it's so mm-hmm. hard to get a hold of. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to call it another TCM uh, uh, theater for, uh, for those in the TCM fest now <laughs> um, uh, experience you and I had at last year's festival, which was fly by night. Um, oh yeah. W- which I guess is there is it's on YouTube, but I don't know. I haven't watched it. I don't know if it's a good, uh, yeah, thing, but it's it. not, it's not a, it's not a widely available or, or discussed movie, but it's a, a ton of fun. Um Yeah. Okay. So what else did we, did we do it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like, like you said, it was kind of a topic born from a uh, Twitter comment that got under your skin to a greater degree, but also my skin as well. And which um, is like just kind of a load of nonsense and which you know, I did see too much about the person who posted it, but does strike me as kind of a very American attitude of like, well, I just see my own way through the history of cinema. It's like, who, who can do that? <laughs> who has the means to just like par- parse through the history of cinema and determine what they're going to watch completely on their own. Um, you know, when half the films aren't even readily available easily, if not more. Yeah. Um, so we're uh, all, we're all subject to the whims of greater forces than we can ever see. And I'm thankful at the very least for those that we can, such as yeah. um, the, hopefully not too uh, late in life TCM classic film channel. Yeah. Um, I forgot there was one other thing I wanted to bring up because actually Natalie brought it up when I was talking to her oh, about sure. this topic. And it's the idea of like the algorithm being so like 
um, uh, uh, personalized, I guess, like when it, I don't even know, she was talking about like when that new Netflix show beef, which I didn't watch, uh, came out like everyone, she and everyone she knew was like on their page when they opened it up. But I don't know if that's true of everyone. Like is, is it, is that based on viewership? And so does it, that become even more like insular that only certain people, I guess to stick with the Netflix thing, like only certain people are going to be aware of the other side of the wind, uh, because well, of the sure algorithm. More, yeah. I'm sure that's more true of the other side of the wind than it is of beef. Um, I, I know Netflix does actively promote, uh, uh, certain shows t- and movies to their entire audience. And I know that okay. there are plenty that they only promote based on the algorithm. Um, and the algorithm is an interesting thing to consider in how this topic will evolve in the next 10 years um, as, you know, potentially the theatrical industry gets narrower and narrower and our options at home get more and more windowed and more and more targeted towards the audience they're trying to reach, which already is sad because, you know, the movies that really last are the ones that hit with audiences that they're not intended to reach. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, that's obviously going to have an effect on what films get out there and get talked about and get, um, preserved, well, maybe in the literal sense of like, it's nonsense that some of these films only exist in streaming channels, but more actively preserved in like the cultural memory of how mm-hmm. people think about uh, the popular cinema or even the greatest cinema. Yeah. Um, we, well, we've got another presidential election coming up. So I'll, I'll, remind, I'll remind our listeners of what our friend Josh Fadum said in 2020, which is I'll vote for anyone who promises to turn off the algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a very base topic, but sure. Look, you got you. He's a he's a one issue voter, single issue voter. You know, and it's an issue he can just ignore if he wants to. <laughs> doesn't doesn't well, affect his life at all. I'm pretty sure he was joking. He's a no, I know, professional, I professional comedian. <laughs> eh, I doubt it. Very serious guy. Uh, all right. Well, um, yeah, this is great. Thank you. Uh, you can find, like I said, follow Tyler. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey pretension, also on blue sky. If you're on blue sky, um, you can follow, uh, uh, check out, check us out at battleshippretension.com. Check out the Patreon there. Check out my other podcast. The one where I met your mother, where my wife, Natalie and I are watching our way through friends and how I met your mother, uh, concurrently. And, uh, what else? Letterboxd David Bax. Uh, Scott, where do you want people to track you down? Uh, go ahead and try me on Twitter at rail of tomorrow. It's, I think it's also rail of tomorrow at blue sky yeah it is very often you just followed me so you tell me um uh yeah there um i just noticed i don't know if this is the same for you this is a complete side topic but i pulled up the little search bar on blue skies i was kind of clicking through and then next to the search bar is the word cancel but it's formatted in such a way that it's only c a n c e on one line and then the l's on a new line return oh see mine i have cancel in in full a lot of horses. So we have a bigger, bigger phone than you. Well, that's undoubtedly true. I have a very small phone. Uh, <laughs> oh, but that's yeah. probably what it is. Blue sky at real tomorrow and a letterbox. Just my name, Scott and I. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, thank you at home for listening. Uh, I won't get you next time because I believe next week uh, you're with Tyler for the big 850. 
Big 850, um, yeah. So congrats, guys, on 850 episodes or nearly Thank there you. as of this recording. Yeah. Um, and then I'll be back, I think, the week after that. You will be because we're doing our top five films of the year so far. That's right. Yeah. So it'll be fun. exciting. All right. Uh, all right. Bye. Bye. Bye.